Today we're going to discuss core skill tuning. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome to the 79th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I'm your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter slash X at underscore Zaccavelli underscore and tune in for game development streams on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Zaccavelli underscore. We also have an open community discord. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And I have a pretty big announcement for the community. Um, on Thursday, November 16th, we will be starting the level design contest. The level design contest is something we do yearly. It kind of replaces the last um, months of the monthly game jam. But yeah, anyways, how it works is we've built our own level designing uh, game. It's sort of in the same vein as something like Mario Maker. And yeah, this year it was really cool. A bunch of people from the community got together and built it. I was actually pretty hands-off. But yeah, if you participated in last year's um, level design contest, you will know the game is called Editar. It is on Steam. I'll leave a link to it um, probably in the Discord announcement. So the best way to follow this would be through Discord. And essentially, we're all going to build 2D platformer levels. Um, you can build as many as you want, but the point is to try and practice uh, good level design. And we've already made all the tools for you to do this, so you can just go on, make your levels. Other people can play them. I can play them. I'll be doing a stream Thursday night when the announcement is made, and I'll be playing levels submitted to me from the community. So yeah, it should be a really fun and easy way that you can squeeze in some practice around this holiday time. I know a lot of people get busy around the holidays, which is the reason we don't do a full game jam, but you should be able to squeeze in, I don't know, like 30 minutes and make a level, or you could squeeze in <laughs> five or 10 levels. Kind of lends itself nicely to however much time you want to put into it. So yeah, the level design contest will start November 16th. If you want more details on that, um, you can just go to the community Discord and there'll be announcements all over the place there. So with the intro out of the way, let's move on over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the listeners and the listeners take it as an opportunity to practice the lessons given through the show. This last Game Dev Challenge was quite long just because of the way the episodes worked out, but if you remember all the way back to episode 77, we talked about loot or rarity systems, rather. And the last game dev challenge was to identify three key things that made your favorite rarity system or horde mode successful. Feel free to use examples from existing games or your own future designs. Remember, it was a quick tips episode, and we did also talk about horde modes, but it seemed like from the game dev challenge submissions, uh, people overwhelmingly wanted to talk about rarity systems, which is perfectly fine. It's a fun thing to design, so I totally get it. Anyways, the winner of the episode 77 Game Dev Challenge is Mazel Le Monarch. I'll paraphrase Mazel's post, but it says, uh, Terraria's rarity system. There are many factors in Terraria which determine drops and rarities. 
but I will talk about the three, in my opinion, most interesting ones. Number one, there are many different enemies in the game and each of them have different spawn chances for themselves. The weakest, most common enemies are slimes. The growth rate of your character's power is so fast that over a short time, slimes become useless. To prevent this, the developers have added some super rare items which can only drop from enemies in certain biomes. Slimes, as an example, are the most common enemy, but they still have a point to exist. And I think Mazel is implying here that certain slimes in biomes could drop um, extremely rare items. Therefore, they're never kind of phased out. They're always worth killing. I think that's really interesting way of going about not having a common enemy just become useless. Anyways, number two, Mazel says, there are multiple stages in the game, even though the game is a sandbox, and you can challenge many of the bosses during any of these stages. Some enemies and drops will spawn only after you defeat a certain boss. So you have to start with the weaker bosses, and this will force a kind of progression without actually forcing it, as you can still challenge the stronger bosses first, even though you'll most likely lose. I think this is also another really cool idea because it allows the player to kind of decide their progression uh, based on which bosses they want to fight. Like, let's say you're looking for a specific item and you know it drops from a specific kind of enemy. Uh, that enemy can't spawn yet because you haven't killed the right boss. You could go and fight that boss first because you know you need that item sooner rather than later. That opens up a lot more player freedom, and anytime you can allow a player to decide the progression at their own pace is good, because everybody's going to have a little bit slightly different paces or want different things, and if they have more agency over how fast those things come to them, well, I guess just more player agency is always a good thing. And the last point that Mazel made was number three. For the bosses themselves, each boss has a pool of certain valuable items. It is always guaranteed for one of these items to drop, thus you'll always get something cool upon defeating a boss. But the item you get may not be the one you're looking for. This makes it so you have to defeat certain bosses multiple times, but you won't be disappointed as you still always get something valuable. This last point reminds me of something I did in one of my very first games, I guess you could ever call it. I think I've told this story a few times, but I used to make uh, games like when I was really, really young. I would have Legos be like my renderer, right? Like we would have little Lego characters. You can imagine them put in an environment like a JRPG where you have three characters and then they're facing a different character. And they're represented by little Lego people and I built a little arena for them. But then I would also have an Excel sheet be the like game logic behind the scenes and we would roll dice and it was, yeah, it was fun. But when you beat a really strong character... We had all these cool little Lego weapons and stuff, and I would put them into a pool. I'd put six items down, we'd roll a dice, and whatever dice roll you got was the weapon you got. That was the very first loot system I think I ever designed. And uh, yeah, this last comment just kind of reminded me of that. So <laughs> yeah, I think there's a reason why Terraria is maybe one of the greatest indie games of all time certainly in terms of success. And I have to make a confession, I've never beaten Terraria. I've played a little bit of it, but never have gotten very far. I know my brother's really into it, so maybe we'll have to do a full playthrough at some point. There's just so many good games in the backlog, it's hard. 
Anyways, congrats to Mazel for winning the episode 77 Game Dev Challenge. For episode 79, I would like you to identify the core skill of a game and talk about how it is developed and expressed in that game. This can be from something you're playing right now or something you're making. The idea is to familiarize yourself with the method of core skill tuning, which is what we're going to talk about today. It's a little bit of an experimental method, and I think it might have some holes, uh, but it's something I've been trying out for a while. So yeah, after you listen to this, I would highly encourage you to give it a shot and participate in the Game Dev Challenge. If you want to do that, you can just go to our community Discord and leave your post in the Game Dev Challenge channel. With the Game Dev Challenge squared away, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today's episode is going to be a bit of an experimental one. Usually for episode topics, I pick things that are well-defined or well-known or lessons that were passed down to me or are widely practiced. But today, I want to bring something a little more experimental. Now, that's not to say it isn't based on true experience. I want to share with you today a method or a framework for designing a game that I myself have been toying with for about a year now. I'll be calling this method core skill tuning, and I don't know, maybe I'll have to give it a different name so it sounds more like what it is, but either way, I think it's an effective method for designing video games. And when used with something a little bit more holistic like the MDA framework, if you want to know more about that, see episode 54, it becomes a very powerful tool for finding issues with your game. And that's primarily how I like to use it. I think it becomes most powerful when you use it on something that already has meat on its bones. In other words, I wouldn't start by designing a game with core skill tuning in mind, but I certainly would after I have a prototype. Anyways, all of this is to say, buckle in, because I have an experimental method to talk to you about today, and I'm sure it'll have some holes poked in it, but the idea of this is maybe I can present this to everyone, we can try it out, and then refine it, and come up with something better. So, what is core skill tuning? Well, for me, it was kind of born out of necessity. An issue that I often have with my games is that they don't make themselves easy to learn. It's not that they are too hard, it's that I get too good at them while making them by just sheer amount of hours I spend with them, and I have all these subconscious biases and blind spots uh, because I know how the game works, and my skill is easily developed in the game because I made the mechanics. I know that it's often not that they're too hard because when I personally teach someone how to play, uh, they play it how I intended and the difficulty is about right. I want to go kind of into a backstory about how I came to this conclusion. When I made Bounce Shot, which is a first-person puzzle shooter, I developed a blind spot. And at first I thought the blind spot was that I got too good at the game and I didn't have a good enough tutorial. But then I noticed something. There was other good players at the game, some even better than me, and I noticed that they struggled a lot with levels they hadn't played before. There's a speedrunning element to the game. Your time is recorded, and it's kind of all about who can solve the puzzles the fastest and the most creative. Some players were good enough that they were posting scores in times similar or better than my own, but when I introduced new levels, these players were not even close to my scores on their initial playthroughs. 
And it's because I knew the solutions to the puzzles. But over time, those players would catch up to me once they also learned the solutions. And eventually, they might figure out alternate solutions that I hadn't thought of. And they could eventually do the puzzles faster and more creative than I. I realized then that the core skill of the game is creatively solving puzzles. Who can come up with the most efficient and highest point way of solving the puzzle? But here's where I made my mistake. I thought a better tutorial would solve this. A tutorial, though, if you think about it, only teaches the basics, the by-the-book methods. It doesn't necessarily teach you how to be creative. Creativity in Bounce Shot is created with experimentation. I wonder if I can do it this way. What if I tried it like this, etc. My flaw is I tried to fix the problem of my game with only a tutorial or hints to solve puzzles or loading screen tips, when really I needed to give more space to experiment. The issue wasn't teaching the basics, although I think, to be fair, teaching the basics needed a little bit of patching. But overall, I needed to give more space to experiment, more allowance, make it easier for players to experiment with their creativity. And the game really does not do this well. The game is structured in courses, and it has eight levels per course. The idea is you complete all eight levels in a course, and a score is calculated by how you did on each level, and you get an overall score for the entire course. But there's no way to repeat a level. If you die in the first five seconds of a level, you go straight to the next level in the course. This, combined with time pressure and a high penalty for failure, means that most players do not ever get to creatively problem solve. They play it safe and do what they have time for just to get to the next level so they have a good score for the course. They can't afford to experiment or fail a level because one, they're going to lose a lot of points for it, but two, if they die five seconds in, they're not going to get to try that level again until they play through the entire course and come back to that level. Think about it. If you fail the first level of an eight-level course, you got to puzzle solve seven more levels before you even get to come back to that one that you failed in the first place. You're not going to remember what you were doing or a new method. You're just going to be basically back at square one. And this was, in my opinion, one of the biggest flaws I made with Bounce Shop. I didn't give the player enough space to develop the core skill of the game. If the core skill is creatively problem solving and they do that with experimentation, I needed to make it easy for them to experiment. Now, don't get me wrong, there are other flaws with Bounce Shot, but this is one that really stuck with me because I thought I fixed it. I thought I saw the blind spot of, oh, this game is too hard, and I thought I fixed it with a tutorial and loading screen tips and hints to solve the puzzles, but I misidentified what the actual core skill was, and I didn't have a complete solution. Adding the tutorial and all the extra information was good, but it wasn't complete. So, what did I learn from this? Well, this is kind of where the core skill tuning idea came to fruition. There are three things I need to do with respect to a core skill of a game in order to make sure that the most important part of the game has as little blind spots or flaws as possible, and I know how to fix them completely. 
I started doing sort of a checklist to hopefully learn from my mistakes and make sure it didn't happen again. I'm not saying that this checklist is going to fix every issue with your game, uh, and you're going to make a perfect game by doing this, but I have noticed that I've caught a lot of potential issues by doing this. So let's go over the checklist, and then we can apply it to a few situational examples. The three steps, or the checklist, is identify the core skill, develop the core skill, and express the core skill. And it's a little weird because you can think of them from both the aspect of yourself as the developer and the player, but let's go through step by step. Step one is to identify the core skill. From a designer perspective, this lets you break down the game and see what's at the center of the experience. This isn't always one thing. For instance, a team-based shooting game, it might have something like aiming as a core skill, positioning as a core skill, communication as a core skill, and I'm sure you could think of a few others. From the player's perspective, you want to make sure that the player is aware of the core skills. Basically, the player should never have to ask the question, how do I play this game the right way? The way that is going to lead to fun. It kind of should just naturally happen. It should be like, oh, uh, I'm playing a shooting game, and when I aim better, I do better in the game. I know that seems really obvious, but it doesn't become obvious uh, in all examples. For instance, in team-based shooters, communication is a huge skill. And this might be something that not everyone sees at first. But if you'll notice in team-based shooters, uh, they've become very, very good at explaining callouts and communication methods, like in a game like Valorant or CSGO or Overwatch. The game gives you tons of information that you can use to communicate with your teammates. And this kind of subtly tells you, okay, communication is going to be an important part of this game. It's really important that your player knows what the core skills are. That way they can do the next two steps. Step two is develop the skill. In step two, we want to make sure the player can develop their core skills. And this sort of has two parts. Part A is to make sure that there is enough there to develop. If the game is so shallow that there's not enough there to learn, and you're already a master as soon as you identify what the core skill is, well, the game isn't going to have much staying power. And part B to this is that you have to help the player develop it. It should be easy for the player to develop the core skills. Remember, this is the flaw that I made with Bounce Shot. If there's so much friction in the process of practicing, the player is just not going to want to practice for very long, and thus they're not going to get good at the core skill of the game. And finally, we get to step three, which is expressing the core skill. This is maybe the most important part, but it's also a little bit nebulous as it has many forms. But we want a way for the player to express that they have a handle on the core skill. We also want the game to express that the player is doing the core skill well. Step three, I think, will become more clear when we get to the examples. So let's just go ahead and jump to a few general examples that maybe help cement these ideas. Let's go back to the competitive FPS example. And for this, we'll just identify one core skill, which is aiming. Aiming is a core skill of our hypothetical game. So we've already done step one. We've identified what the core skill is. We'll move on to step two, which is developing it. And if we think about it, first we should make sure that the skill is deep enough to develop. So maybe we introduce things like recoil and headshots. 
These are related to aiming. They One kind of throws off the aim and others reward extremely precise aim. And this makes the core skill of aiming on the whole a little bit deeper and ensures there's enough to this skill to want to learn and develop. Remember, part B of step two, uh, that's really confusing, but the second part of step two is we want to make sure that it's easy to improve the skill. So we have recoil, for instance. We should probably start with how recoil functions. If it's purely random and uncontrollable, well, it's kind of out of the player's hands to get better. Because whether or not you hit the target is heavily dependent or even solely dependent on RNG. And it's hard to get good at RNG. In fact, it's impossible. If anyone knows of any ways of practicing luck, I would very much like to <laughs> learn those methods. Anyways, let's say our recoil system had something a little bit more consistent, something you could actually practice, like spray patterns. If you don't know what spray patterns are, they're often seen in competitive shooters where certain kind of guns will have specific recoil patterns. This allows you to kind of get to learn a specific gun. You know how the recoil is going to be when you shoot it. That way you can kind of counteract it and practice it for all the different kinds of guns. Now, how are you gonna practice this sort of thing? Well, what if we introduced a shooting range? A place where the player could select any gun in the game and just practice how the recoil of a gun behaves. Now I think we have a pretty solid step two of our core skill. It's deep with some additional mechanics, but also it's something that the player can practice and we have a way for them to easily practice it. Lastly, we need to talk about how the core skill is expressed. The way that this takes form in this example is what is the outcome of a player being good at the core skill of aiming? In this example, maybe we have a headshot be an instant kill. Therefore, the better you aim, the better the player is going to do. And as an example of how to maybe catch a potential problem, let's look at a potential problem we could have with the game. Let's say you have a technical issue with the hitboxes. If on a player's screen it looks like they're shooting at the head, but it's not being registered due to a technical issue, then that is a pretty big deal. Our core skill tuning method would tell us this, right? We are completely disrupting a core skill by having this small technical issue. But if your hitboxes are working correctly, and maybe even put in a nice bit of polish like a special headshot hit marker and a headshot sound, well now, not only do you have a core skill that is identifiable and practicable, but also it's expressed by the game well, both in gameplay and aesthetics. And I think with all this put together, you have a satisfying piece of a shooter. With that example, I hope you can see how we can put everything sort of together and rationalize it and even catch mistakes and how bad the mistakes are going to be for the overall health of the game because your game is going to have mistakes and errors and sometimes you're going to have to just accept that they have them and you're going to have to almost do a triage which things are the most important and which are the least important and with using this method we could see that for instance the hitbox thing would have been higher up on that priority because it disrupts a core skill of the game let's go through one more example and i hope that with this example and the one we just talked about you'll start to see how I use this exactly 
and how maybe you can start applying it to your own games. Let's apply this theory to my current game project, Mirror Throne. Mirror Throne is an auto battler similar to Super Auto Pets if you've ever played that game. Uh, you can actually see me develop it live on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash underscore. Right now I'm streaming uh, Tuesday and Thursday nights at 6.30pm Eastern. Anyways, the gist of the game loop is you have a budget, you must build a team of characters to fight in an auto battler. After the battle, you are again given a budget, and with that new budget, you improve your team, replace characters, and fight again. And you kind of go through that cycle of, I got some gold, buy new characters, or improve characters, fight. I got some gold, buy new characters, improve characters, fight. So first off, this game is a strategy game, and the core skill of any strategy game is decision making. We can narrow that down a little bit more though. The core skill specifically of Mirror Throne is picking the right characters and improving them. So we've identified what a core skill of the game is. Next we want to move on to developing this core skill. Remember, there's two parts to this step. Part one is making sure it's deep enough that, we, that the player would want to develop it, that there's enough there to learn for it to be satisfying. In which case, I have implemented a design rule for myself when I'm making this game. Whenever I introduce a new character or item to the game, I have to be able to think of three synergies or unique ways I could use this thing I'm adding. This will ensure that there are tons of fun and interesting synergies. And there'll be plenty of skill to develop in knowing the characters and knowing how they interact with each other and certain items. And by the way, if we're using the golden rule, the emotion we're trying to evoke is that aha moment when you see a cool way you can synergize stuff, you set it all up, you press go, and it does that cool thing that you imagined, or it blows up in your face. It's sort of like the joy of setting up a long chain of dominoes or a Rube Goldberg machine. So I think we have a pretty good understanding of how to develop the core skill, at least the depth of it. But we also want to make sure that we make it easy for the player to develop their own core skill of picking characters. We want them to be able to practice it and get better. We'll need to do this by making sure there's good tooltips that clearly explain what the characters do. If a player doesn't understand what the characters do, then they can't have that aha moment because they can't see how to put the pieces together. So we need to make sure that there's tooltips on the characters that clearly explain what this character is going to do so the player can puzzle the things together. We also need to make sure that losing a single battle isn't so costly that you only get to test out an iteration of your team once or only stick to things that you know work. If it's really punishing to experiment with new characters or new setups, then the player is going to be less likely to do them and therefore they're going to have less moments where really cool synergies happen. And lastly, the game needs to not totally depend on RNG because, as we mentioned before, you can't practice RNG. So with those things that I've just identified, I think we'll make it easy for players to practice the core skill of picking characters. They're not going to be punished too hard for experimenting. There's going to be plenty of experiments to want to do. Hopefully the information is good enough that they can kind of see how the pieces might fit together. And yeah, with all of that in mind, I think we have a solid step two. Let's move on to step three, which is the expression of the core skill. In Mirror Throne, this is pressing the go button 
and seeing the characters do all of their cool abilities. It's important for the auto battles to clearly show what is happening with stat displays and animations. And you'll notice that a lot of the things that I've identified in this um, example of using core skill tuning with this game is clearly explaining information. And this kind of goes back to what I said at the very top. The core skill of any strategy game is decision making. And what do you want as a player when you're trying to make a decision? Lots of clear information. So it doesn't surprise me that going through this method, one of the key things that we discovered is our game has to have clear information. Tooltips that explain what characters do, stat displays, feedback animations that show like, hey, this character is doing their ability. I think that's a good litmus test that doing this method, we came to that conclusion. And if you look at it from like a very top level, you might also come to the same conclusion that, yeah, in a strategy game, you want to make sure there's lots of clear information. Another part of this expression step is that the characters should be balanced. If the game is unbalanced and too easy, well, then your core skill of decision making and picking characters won't matter. You can put any characters out there and you win every time. If the game balance is too hard, well, then your decisions also won't matter as much. Whether or not you win is going to require extra RNG and you knowing the exact combination of characters that is best. This is going to significantly cut down on that cool experimentation because in order to win, you're going to have to stick with the so-called best characters. As you can see, using this method, I've already identified a few problem areas with the game's design. And we even know kind of the best ways to approach it to ensure that the game is fun and that the player can identify the core skill, practice it, and express it. Now, just because I've identified these problem areas doesn't mean I'm going to have the perfect fix for it. But I can see the issues now before I have to find out it's an issue through Steam reviews on launch day. And now I can dedicate time and decisions to hopefully address it fully. And I think that is the real power of this method. We can see ahead of time what the potential issues are with the core parts of the game. And hopefully we can make good decisions around that by looking through this core skill tuning lens. Now, like I said, this is an experimental method that I've totally just <laughs> made up based on the experiences I've had of the last, I don't know, two years of making games. And it does have some flaws that I can see with it. Um, first off, if you misidentify the core scale of your game, that's kind of like a singular failure point that messes up the whole thing. Now, hopefully that doesn't happen, but I can see it getting hard or confusing to identify the core skill if you're working on a game that is very big with lots of core skills. It might not be that you misidentify one, but you might like totally miss a core skill that has to do with your game just because you never thought about it. Another flaw or a belief I've come to after using this for a while is that this shouldn't be the only lens you use to analyze your game. It's purely an extra tool. Like I said, it doesn't really work on games in theory. It works better on things that are already prototypes. That is to say, I wouldn't start with this. I would use this after I have a prototype. If I'm starting a game design, I might stick with something more like the MDA framework. And the last flaw that I can see at the moment 
is I'm not sure how this method applies to something that doesn't heavily rely on skill, like an idle or cozy game. Sometimes those games' core skill is just your ability to chill. And, I don't know, maybe there's something to this method where you could fit those games in, but I haven't given it much thought beyond the fact that I think it might work a little different. And I guess with those flaws identified, this is where I kind of want to open the discussion a little. I want you to give this method some thought and see if you can poke some holes in it. Maybe give it a try by participating in the Game Dev Challenge, or just thinking about a current game you're playing with this lens. Actually, I had a whole segment written for this about applying this method to Diablo 4, <laughs> but I figured people were tired of listening to me talk about Diablo. So if you're interested in that, just uh, ping me on Discord or ask about it on stream, but be prepared. <laughs> it's going to be a long conversation. Speaking of the Discord, if you have any thoughts about this method, uh, let's start a discussion in the episode discussion channel. Like I said, I want, to, I want you to poke holes in this. I want to see the flaws in it. Maybe we can reorganize it or communicate the steps better. Like, why is step two also have part one and two? Maybe together we can refine this method into something really useful and something that we can all add to our design toolbox moving forward. So yeah, with that said, let's do a quick summary to maybe jog your memory a little while you think about it. Today's episode was about an experimental method I've been trying called core skill tuning. It was born out of necessity due to me missing flaws, often having to do with difficulty and skill in my games. There are three steps and they go like this. Step one is to identify the core skill or skills of your game. These are the things that your player is required to do to have fun with your game. A good example is aiming in a shooting game. Step two is developing the core skill, and this is the one with two parts. Part one is make sure your game is deep enough so that there's something to learn, and the second part is making sure it's easy for the player to practice this skill. In a shooting game, this would be like having recoil on guns, but also a shooting range and a consistent spray pattern so that they can practice dealing with recoil. And part three is expression. You can have a deep core skill that is easy to practice, but if ultimately it doesn't matter or the player doesn't know it's there, it'll still be a problem. Expression is the game balance, the feedback, the skill ceiling, etc. that has to do with the core skill. If, for instance, in a shooting game, the hitboxes are too small, it might feel like you're hitting your target, but really you're missing. And that feels bad from a skill expression standpoint. It looks like you hit your target, but actually that one doesn't count, is an extremely frustrating thing to have happen. Remember that this is an experimental method with flaws. It shouldn't be the only design lens you use. It has a single point of failure if you misidentify the core skill. And I'm not sure it can be applied in all situations, like a cozy game for instance. If you'd have thoughts on this method, I'd love to hear them. Uh, we're going to have a discussion in the episode discussion channel of the Discord. But yeah, give this method a try and let me know what you think. And I think uh, that's going to do it for today. Let me know if you like this sort of untested theory style of episode. I have a few other thoughts that are kind of <laughs> untested or experimental, so they're probably wrong. But yeah, I've come a long way since I started the podcast 
And uh, some of my thoughts on how things are have started started to morph, or maybe it, I don't feel the same way. I think the only issue with some of these episodes is that I try to make all the information evergreen, and an experimental thing can't be evergreen by its nature, right? Like, it's not really set in stone yet how this is going to work. So yeah, maybe that's one flaw with these sort of experimental style of episodes, but... Let me know what you think. Let me know if you like this kind of thing or if we just want to go back to buy-the-book methods. With that said, I think I'm going to sign off. I have been Zachavelli, theoretical game design expert, and I'll see you in the next episode of The Game Dev Field Guide. <laughs>